Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it. From the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life. And in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you. So the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to former Buddhist monk and Headspace founder Andy Puddicombe about mindfulness. Hi, Simon. I am thrilled to have you on Don't Tell Me The Score. As you know, I was fighting and working hard to get you on <laughs> over a long period of time. I'm a, a huge headspace advocate and I can say, honestly, you're the first guest I've had on who I've spent, you know, long periods of time in my bedroom with my eyes shut <laughs> listening to you. We should probably give that some context for people who aren't familiar with headspace. Yeah. You know? I'll leave that to you. Yeah. So this that's what you do though, isn't it? It is no and look, thank you for, for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, no, it's great to have you here. Um we're obviously talking about mindfulness, meditation, yep. uh also sport, but before all that, we have to talk about you and your story because it's a pretty. Do we cool, have to. We have to. Do we? It's, okay. it's a great one. Come on, it's it's a fabulous <laughs> story. We're not going to like pour over it for hours and hours. So let, let's dive in. Okay. There you are, early twenties. Yep. Studying sports science. Yep. Various tough things in your life. Yep. 
and you decide to go and be a monk, as you do. Everybody does that at some stage <laughs> in their life, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, look, I, um, it was, it's interesting. Retrospectively, I'm with you. It sounds quite extreme. It sounds a bit rash, maybe. Um, but at the time, it really didn't feel that way. It's quite hard to... You know that, you know, people talk about sort of having a, a cooling in life or something like that, you know, like a feeling that is is so strong, you kind of can't ignore it. And I'd never sat down, trust me. I mean, I was, so I was studying sports science. I was working as a personal trainer. I was competing in gymnastics. I'd grown up sort of playing rugby and all that stuff. I was going out at night at college, having a good time. At no stage was I drawing up a, a list of pros and cons of being a Buddhist monk. So this wasn't something that was kind of planned or anything like that. Um, there was just a growing tension, I would say, in my mind. Partly um, through some stuff, we can talk about it, but some stuff that happened in my kind of late teens, I just had never kind of really been able to make peace with. But also just this growing sense of, I was studying all this stuff, doing all these things that in theory I thought should make me happy, but it wasn't really making me that happy. And I just had a, a sense that I needed to do something kind of more. And I read about meditation and stuff and I talked to people about it, but I, I just didn't feel like I could get what I was looking for from a book or by going to a local meditation class. So I jacked in my degree and um, got on a plane and went, and went out to the Himalayas because yeah. that's what you do when you want to become a monk. What, what was the reaction from your close family and friends? So <laughs> That's an odd conversation. Th isn't it? Those that didn't want, didn't want to have me sectioned. Um, I think, so I think everyone was, well, look, everyone had a slightly different kind of take on it. Um, I think my, my dad was just completely bemused by the whole thing. My mum was actually really, she was actually really proud, but, um, cause she, she was the one that got me into meditation when I was about 10 or 11 years old. So, you know, it'd been around a bit. So she was, my sister was a bit disappointed cause you know, we were pretty close and, and, and tight and my friends at uni just thought I was absolutely bonkers. I mean, it was so left field for where we were at that time. Um, so it was, a, it was a mixed, it was a mixed bag, I'd say. And my girlfriend at the time, I don't think she was terribly impressed when I said, oh, by the way, <laughs> she's like, you're just making this up. Wow. Um, it's pretty brave, actually. I mean, to actually, you, you talk about a calling, but um, to follow that calling is incredibly brave because as well, it wasn't as even mainstream, if you want to call meditation mindfulness now mainstream, as yeah. it is now. Oh, it wasn't even close. I mean, 25 years ago or whatever it was, you know, that was, um, yeah, it was, it just wasn't even on the radar, I think. And maybe, I, I don't see it as brave. I, I, I really felt like I didn't have a choice. No other thing in life made sense for me at that time. I could have done something else. I could have chosen to ignore it, but it would have been madness. Yeah. I just, I couldn't get my head around doing anything else other than following that feeling. So yeah. There you go. Did you intend to stay there? Did you think this is, this is, or were you not planning that far ahead? Yeah. So you'd think kind of as a Buddhist monk, kind of don't look to the future, be present. But definitely I went there thinking, I think I went there thinking I was going to do this for the rest of my life. And um, I hadn't necessarily really thought that through and the implications. I was young. I was naive. But um, I did go, I did go there thinking like, this is a decision. I wasn't thinking, okay, I'm going to go there for a little bit and then come back. I kind of just thought, okay, this is what I need to do. 
Um, and I just assumed that I would be there for, for the rest of my life. And you were there for what, 10 years? Yeah, so I, it wasn't that I, I wish it was as neat and tidy as I went there and I became a monk and 10 years later I left because um, that would make for a really short story. Um, but it's, you know, I went there and I trained first as a lay person and I found that monastery quite challenging. So I went to Burma, trained in the Burmese tradition for quite a while and trained as a novice monk. And then eventually I took full ordination in the Tibetan tradition. Uh -huh. And then, yeah, 10 years, 10 years later on that journey, um, I decided to come back to, to the UK. And that tradition, the Great Seal, is that right? Yeah. No, a little hey, bit. Look at this. Tell, I mean, my research, <laughs> yeah. Andy. Um, I want to ask you what sort of that that means later. Uh, but what what were you what did your days look like then? Were you, were you just meditating eight, nine, ten hours a day? So it varied. So in there were some monasteries I stayed in that um, were not necessarily retreat monasteries, and in those monasteries you could do anything from say two to eight hours a day. I would say depending on the monastery. The rest of the time you're cooking and cleaning and gardening and doing stuff kind of just to help the general running of the monastery and then there were retreat monasteries um, or separate retreats where you go for up to a year at a time um, and in those you're doing anything between 14 and in Burma even 18 hours a day of meditation and 18 14 to 18 hours a day 365 days yeah no no silent is that silent no it's not silent some of them are we do months at a time in in silence definitely <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, every day is the same and, um, no, no Sundays. I think why in one Tibetan monastery, it was in, it was actually in the West. So there was a bit more kind of understanding. The retreat master said, like it was Christmas and, uh, he said, okay, you, you can have two hours off after lunch on Christmas day. He That's said, nice. you can just sit in the kitchen and have a chat amongst yourselves and then it's back to your rooms. So two hours in a year. Right, <laughs> oh my, that's amazing. I've read an interesting book. I, I'm not sure what it's called here, but I think it, in America it's called Alter Traits, Alter States by Daniel Goleman. Okay. And it talks about, it studies yogis who've basically um, meditated for, you know, in caves for, yeah. for de years at a Hardcore. time. Yeah. And, and the difference in their in their brain. Yeah. And, you know, the we think of prison when you get put in, you know, isolation. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. But yeah. these guys... As a yogi, you look for it. Choose isolation yeah. and, and are the happiest people in the world. Yeah. It's, it's counterintuitive. It's an interesting thing. I think very often... Well, I think to be fair, I think when it's a choice, that is a, it's a slightly different yeah. scenario. Um, but I think, yeah, very often we, we resist being with ourselves. Yeah. In, in fact, for a lot of us, it's actually really uncomfortable to be with ourselves. And when we're stressed or feeling unhappy, it's particularly difficult to be with ourselves. Mm. So, yeah, part of the training, I would say, is to find ourselves the space and the environment where we can be with our mind even in those difficult times and get comfortable with that discomfort. Yeah. And weirdly, although it sounds kind of counterintuitive, that can lead to happiness. So rather than searching for happiness, thinking we're going to find it, we kind of, we explore our suffering and our struggle. And in exploring that, we discover happiness. Mm. So it's a slightly different way of looking at it. Sure, sure. So you end of your 10 years. Yep. Your mind is sharp as a razor. Well. 
former former pers- <laughs> former personal trainer your yeah. body has suffered because you weren't allowed to exercise that's right so another completely logical and understandable decision what do you do well i mean what else you do you go and join the moscow state circus right? i know it does it, it does sound like the start of a really bad joke <laughs> but um uh yeah i was so to give it some context um the monastery had asked me to go and teach in a, a meditation center in in russia i actually ended up living there for four and a half years and I finished my time as a monk whilst I was whilst I was living there. So I had six months left, and yeah, I'd done no exercise for sort of ten years, other than a little bit in the Tibetan um, tradition. And um, and yeah, and I, I exercise was my life before I got into the monastery. So I was really keen to sort of get back into my body again and do some of that stuff. And a friend of mine was doing a degree at Moscow State Circus, and he said, "Why don't you just come along? Kind of just have a chat, and you know, pay a few dollars, and you can get some lessons." And so I started doing that, and I was doing a bit of bit of acrobatics bit of juggling and just fooling around you know and um and the guy said hey look you know you can do a degree in this back in london and at the time i was trying to work out one what was i going to do with my my life how was i because i knew i wanted to do what i'm doing now i didn't know about sort of technology and the app and everything but i knew i wanted to make meditation more accessible but i as a monk you give everything away your clothes, like money, everything. So I didn't have anything. So I was in Moscow thinking, what am I going to do? So this seemed like a really good vehicle to one, go back to London, um, two, to get the government as a mature student to actually kind of help me pay for my study and um, and, and also kind of get back into my body and just feel kind of like I was part of like the normal world again, you know? So it was actually, it was amazing. I spent two, two years, um, uh, circus base in London, out in Shoreditch, and I had the time of my life. It's incredible. Got the body back in shape. Well, Re- yeah. I mean, my 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 wife might wish I stayed there a little <laughs> bit longer, but um, I definitely enjoyed the yeah, the time there. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. And then, so fast forward quickly. Yeah. Here we are. Um, yeah. Chance meeting with your co-founder. Yeah. Headspace is born. Yeah. So I met. Um. I went after the circus. I started working in a clinic, seeing people one to one. And, um, and I was introduced to, to Rich through a mutual friend. He was a burnt out kind of ad exec. Um, and, and I was looking for a way to kind of take, and he wanted to learn meditation. I was looking for a way to take meditation outside of the clinic, make it bigger. We were introduced, we got on really well. And he said, we should do the Nike Plus for meditation. And I've got to tell you, like back then, that was so far sort of forward thinking. There were no meditation apps back then. There's a lot now, but there were, there were none. And... You know, so much so that I couldn't even really wrap my head around it. The internet had happened whilst I'd been away. I didn't really kind of know what it was. So I persuaded Richie to do uh, to do events for a few years. And then, yeah, seven years ago, we launched we launched our first app. And here we are. What is and it? here we are. 40 million users in yeah, 190 come... countries. That's insane. It's a lot. It is a lot. It's the original and the best. I, you, you, well, you wouldn't say it, so I'm saying it. I, I'll, I'll say it's the original. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll add on that little best bit. Yeah, I mean, Headspace is, I mean, I've used it. I know lots of people have used it as a way to um, popularise meditation yeah. and mindfulness and stuff like that. It's, I mean, you're doing what you set out to do in a big way. Yeah, I mean, always the aim was to, to demystify it to make it more accessible, to make it non-threatening, to make it feel playful and to make a positive difference in the world. You know, like I, 
our vision it sounds kind of a bit cliche but as a as a monk kind of every day you're committing to reducing suffering in the world and so it seemed natural to flip that on its head when we started headspace and say okay well let's try and improve the health and happiness of the world and it's something that rich and i kind of care about deeply and something we try to instill in the culture of an ever-expanding team in in la mm. Before we get on to like what actually it all is, mm. how different were you when you came back, or at this point, say when you had set up Headspace? How different yeah. different was the internal working, say, of your mind to when you left? Yeah, from when I left the monastery. No, from so when you left sports science. How, what was the, how Oof. different was with the two? Yeah, I can't. I don't know if I could even compare really? the two. And I, it wasn't that. I was necessarily a, a different person. I think that's one really interesting thing. I think a lot of people think that you have to become a different kind of person. Some people are even scared that they might become a different kind of person. When I go back to like where I grew up and stuff, my mates are still my mates. And we talk amongst each other in the same way that we talked back then. I think what's changed is my perception of the world around me and the experience. So it's not that meditation has changed the things that happen in my life. It's changed my perception of all of those things. Okay. And what about the stuff that's going on between your ears? Like, is it an oasis of calm or do you still have those say angry or frustrated or scared thoughts passing I, through your thought stream? I have two very young children. So I have all of those things going on, you know. Like look, I think it's um it's interesting, you know. I perhaps begin so before I kind of went off to on on that journey, I might have thought that meditation was about banishing kind of all of those things, emotions and thoughts from my mind. And over time being on that journey, I've started to understand that actually it's more about recognizing that as human beings, it's natural to experience those things. It's just when we give them a lot of attention they tend to take over and we waste a lot of energy kind of caught up in that stuff so i think the difference is that yes i still experience those things but they tend not to bother me so much when they happen and they tend not to stick around nearly as long as they they might have done once upon a time right let, let's get into the the what's and the why's okay. and all that stuff because i think that's a really good juncture because so i mentioned to you i did a headspace devotee then did an eight week john cabot's in um uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Yeah, very fortunately, um, with someone who's training to teach in it, and so I, I meditate a lot, and it's been hugely valuable. In fact, I have people tweet me because I bang on about it on the podcast. Is that right? So, like, so like, if I hear you talk about, anyway. <laughs> um, but what I noticed is that. Uh, rather than thinking that you're going to empty your mind, it, it's more observing how your mind works. And I think is that, yeah. that's quite a common misconception, would you say? It's a huge misconception. I think it's, it's one of the reasons many people don't even try meditation. They're worried that they won't ever be able to stop the thoughts. Mm. And the way it was explained to me, and we've even kind of made these into animations and things on, on the app and on the website, is it's a little bit like sitting on the side of side of a road and the cars going past there the the thoughts in the mind and normally how we are in our life we're out in the road we're running around we're chasing after the cars we like the look of we're trying to stop the cars we don't like the look and expending a huge amount of energy in trying to kind of control the traffic on the road the thoughts in our mind and meditation isn't about clearing the road. It's a road. It was built for traffic. So sometimes there will be traffic on the road. It's more about stepping out of the road and getting comfortable sitting on the side of the road. And as we do that and as we learn not to be involved in the thinking, for most people, the amount of traffic on the road tends to decrease. 
things calm down a little bit and we no longer kind of chase after the exciting thoughts. We no longer resist the difficult and challenging thoughts and we find a place, I guess you could call peace of mind. Mm. Uh, yeah, understanding, I suppose, as well, that, that those thoughts are not us. Is that is that true as well? Yeah, I think most of us live our lives thinking that we are our thoughts. I think the more we meditate, the more we start to see that actually there's some space in stepping back. It's kind of, if we could control our thoughts, we would have done that a long time ago and we would have peace of mind. And all of a sudden, when you witness your mind from a place of awareness, you see that, wow, actually these thoughts, they just kind of come and go. And if we don't pay them a huge amount of attention, then actually they, the important thing is they don't just come, they do go as well. Mm. There's an impermanent kind of nature to them, a fleeting nature to them. So settling into that, getting comfortable with this idea that actually we can find peace of mind in being less involved in our thoughts is is central to mindfulness. A guy who taught me about mindfulness called Guy Meadows uh, Mm. a few years back, he had quite a nice analogy that worked for me, which is it's like a tug of war. Mm. And if you've got like the thoughts at one end and you're at the other end, you know, pulling at it, it keeps them there. But letting go, then the tension disappears. Working on your mind, um, I know... Like you experience everything through your mind. Yeah. You've talked about this. I know I've watched yeah. your TED talk a number of times about how, you know, it's, it's, it is everything, isn't it? And we, just, we don't sort of clock it. No. So it makes total sense to work on one's mind. And I yeah. think, you know, you were a, a PT back yep. in the day and 20, 25 years ago, working in the gym, going to the gym rather, was not as commonplace as it is now. Absolutely. Mindfulness and meditation is catching up not as, not as fast as that. But do you yeah. think in another, say, 20 years, it will be as commonplace as, as Jim work? I, I think it will. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I, you know, I grew up in the, the 70s and in the late 70s, I remember my mum taking up jogging and, you know, and we, as kids, we would, we would run with her. Not so much because we were trying to keep fit, but because we wanted to make fun of her for running because it was such a strange thing yeah. to do back in there. Mm-hmm. And now as we look at how that's kind of changed over time, there was a, um, a CNBC um, report that came out about six months ago in the US that actually showed that mindfulness has already caught up with yoga. And yoga probably had a kind of a good 10-year head start. And I think the difference is that mindfulness, We, you know, there's the opportunity to deliver it kind of through a digital platform. I think that's a big change. And I think the, the science has kind of started to speed up as well. And we're starting to understand how the brain is, is kind of influenced by meditation. And then there's kind of just a broader conversation happening really quickly now in society where there's a recognition that mental health is really important and we can't afford to ignore it anymore so i feel like there's all these different factors coming into play which are helping to speed up how this is being integrated into into society you mentioned apps and digital and stuff there and on the one hand it's making us more distracted you see people staring at their phones and yet on the other hand there are apps like yours within that same technology yeah counter it which for me kind of suggests that it's the tech it's not the technology that's bad we can't say technology is good or bad we can choose to use it in a way that's healthy or a way that's unhealthy we can choose to use it to promote positive behaviors or negative behaviors i think it's it's still new i think most of us are still working out what it means to have a healthy relationship with with our phone and with technology but i do think yeah i think headspace is a great example that we can use this. Like, there's no way that we could have reached 40, 45 million people in any other way had it not been for this. And there's no way that we could have met people where they are 
had it not been for the phone. So I think it can be used in a, in a very positive way. You speak about you only need to dedicate 10 minutes a day to make yeah. a difference. Is that honestly as, as little as one needs to do to really reap the benefit? Yeah, so I've found this fascinating because when I, you know, in full disclosure, when I came out of the monastery, I thought, you know, if it was less than an hour, it's kind of not really any point, you know. And I started to experiment with people kind of in the clinic and it was trying to find the, the amount of time that was enough to give a positive outcome. But, you know, it just needed to be kind of like a, the, the right balance. And at that time, the only research really was around the relaxation response which is the flip side of the stress response. And most um, scientists felt that within 10 minutes we could experience the relaxation response. So when that happens, our, our heart rate slows down, our breathing slows down, we start to produce less cortisol, less adrenaline in the body, and we move towards a state of deep relaxation. So I kind of felt that was an interesting kind of number to, to play with. And as the science has gone on over the last 10 years, um, we've actually found that it's actually more to do with frequency than it is with duration. So all I mean, all of the studies that we're doing now, we have 20 published papers. We have 65 in the pipeline, the clinical trials, really robust studies. Um, they're all done with 10 minutes. So, yes, we found really considerable benefits using just 10 minutes. Could there be even more benefit to meditating for longer? Probably. Mm. Um, and if people have the inclination and the time, then great. But for most people, that 10 minute number it feels really achievable. And I would far rather people set out with the idea of doing that and achieving it rather than thinking, oh, mm. I don't know if I want to sit for an hour today and then not following through with it. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. People still have that resistance to yeah. meditation, even at 10 minutes, which is like no time at all. I mean, if you think about the yeah. amount of time people spend on social media I know. or whatever else. I know. Why it, is that? It's amazing, right, the, that we so often kind of don't do the things that are good for us. In life. Same with exercise and, and so, so many different things. I think with the mind, there's, there is something kind of extra, which is we often don't want to do it when we're feeling stressed or when we're feeling unhappy. 
because it means that we have to sit with a stressed person. We have to sit with an unhappy person, you know, and that's that's the idea that we have at least. But actually, when we do sit with those thoughts and with those feelings and then we create that space again, then all of a sudden we realize it's not the person that's unhappy or that has a busy mind. or It's, it's actually just an accumulation of emotion, of thoughts. And in sitting down, we allow those thoughts to play out and actually afterwards we tend to feel better mm. so i think that's often what's behind um kind mm. of people choosing not to do it. and also just i don't think we have a, a culture of meditation being part of our daily routine so it's really interesting now it's getting into loads of schools and it's becoming part of school curriculums i think in time i really think it will become a bit like brushing our teeth i was just about to say that someone used that analogy on, yeah. on the course i was on and that worked for me just make it part of your routine like brushing your teeth exactly i would i would even go so far as to say if you're struggling to find a way to incorporate mindfulness into today attach it to something that you already do so shower and meditation and then all of a sudden well you shower every day so all you got to do is tackle meditation kind of after that so it, it's almost being inserted into some into the day as part of something you already do and yeah in the same way we we brush our teeth we clean our body every day it's a good idea to clean our mind every day as well so so let's talk quickly about like what a meditation session, if you like, looks like for people who, who aren't familiar. So yeah. I'll sit down and, as I mentioned, I did this course, so I'll either listen to a body scan or, but now increasingly, I'm just following my breath. So yeah. I'll just have my attention down in my belly, follow yeah. the breath. And invariably, in ne like split seconds, off I go into thinking about something that's happened or whatever. For sure. And I know that my inclination can be I'm not doing it right. I yes. can still have that pattern, <laughs> yep. you know? But yeah, it's that, a strong pattern. Yeah, but it's not true, though. That it's definitely it. not true. There is no good or bad meditation. Uh, there is simply sort of we have our attention or we've lost our attention. And over time, to begin with, we lose our attention all the time. And then kind of, yeah, over time, we, we start to, to be able to kind of focus a, a little more. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's natural to, to experience that. There's a few things you can do just to make it easier. So the first thing is not to immediately focus on the breath. So that's a bit like kind of getting on a treadmill and going straight to kind of 10 miles an hour. Like start off slow. Start off just settling in, just giving yourself even a few minutes if you have the time just to get comfortable, notice the sounds around you, notice how the body's feeling. All of this is sort of bringing the body and mind back together. So generally speaking, the body sat down, but our mind's thinking about something else. We're walking down the street, the mind's thinking about something else. So by doing this, we allow the body and mind to reconnect. So that when we finally do focus on the breath, it's that, that little, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But yeah, to begin with, the mind's going to wander a lot and that's okay. Our only job is not to worry or to think about how much our mind is wandering, whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, whether we're doing a good job or a bad job. Our only job is to realize when it's wandered and in that moment to let go of it and to bring our attention back to our object of focus. And each time we do that, that's a win. That's a win. Right. All day long, okay. yeah, and that is training the mind. It's like a little puppy dog. To be, to begin with, yeah. it's kind of just racing around all over, and over time, it learns to sit and it learns to sit until eventually, the puppy dog is happy just to lie down there and rest in front of us. Is that what your mind's like, a lying puppy dog? <laughs> like a little fluffy puppy dog. <laughs> That's a lovely image. That's interesting, though. That 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 is the win. Yet 
I know from my own experience, that can also be the moment that we chide ourselves most. Oh, yeah. being distracted again. But actually, no, you, that's what it's meant to be. Yeah, well, and, and that's where thinking about thinking comes in. So, so then we've, we're no longer thinking about kind of did we leave the cooker on at home and what we've got to do tomorrow and all that sort of stuff. Now we're thinking about the meditation and we're thinking about, oh, but my mind just wandered off. So again, for me, we treat those thoughts in exactly the same way. So let's say that happens and suddenly we jump in with, we're thinking it's, oh, no, I can't believe. Oh, hold on. That's thinking. You let that go. Come back to the breath. And over time, we start to let go of thinking about thinking as well as just plain old thinking. Yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's very easy, isn't it? They, they, they never stop those pesky thoughts. I know. Um, mindfulness and meditation. Mm. Now, I was thinking about this because I, I went to the gym a little earlier and uh, I was in the shower afterwards and um, my mind was thinking about a, a little... I don't want to say Barney, like small tiff I'm having with my sister. <laughs> you know, so I'm like yeah. having an argument in my head in the shower. But yeah. I caught myself. And I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. the benefit of meditation is like I can catch myself now. Absolutely. Like state. But yeah. so what is the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Yeah, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Because they are used interchangeably so much now. Um, for me, there's a really big difference between the two. So mindfulness, the way I was taught it, the way I understand it, is our ability to be present, undistracted at any time in our life. And that can be, it can be sitting down meditating, but it can also be walking down the street, could be having a shower, could be while we're eating our food. Um, I think most of us have experienced it at some stage in our life, those moments where all the thoughts just seem to disappear, maybe... I don't know, maybe we're listening to a nice piece of music, watching a sunset, watching our children play or something like that. Um, but normally those moments, they're few and far between. And even when they do happen, they don't last as long as we'd like them to. And it's difficult if you say to someone, well, just be more mindful in life. Well, how am I supposed to do that? So meditation is a way I see, uh, you know, is a way of kind of removing ourselves from the busyness of life and actually training in mindfulness. So it's a... Uh, it's uh, an environment in which we can cultivate that quality of mindfulness so we can then apply in our everyday life. For me, that's the real value. And even in the monastery, you don't sit for hours on end to become really good at sitting hours on end with your eyes closed. I mean, you know, what's the point in that? It's like, how can you then carry that back to your everyday life? So I actually think, you know, as valuable as the 10 minutes in the day might be, there's another 23 hours and 50 minutes. And it's like, how can we start to be more mindful throughout the rest of the day? That's where the the real kind of value is i think that's another misconception as far as i'm concerned because that book that i mentioned altered traits altered states yeah. so people think it's about altered states so yeah. being in this kind of bliss state with no thought yeah. but actually the real benefit is found in the altered traits that come after yeah. the meditation the, like you said that 23 hour 50 this one i don't know if we've got time for this is one base it's so relevant i've got, I've got to share it there's yeah. a there was a, a study that was done back it was a long time ago um where they got two different um types of meditators in a lab um and they wired them up with these ECG, EEG, and they wanted to see what would happen. They got them and they were meditating and then someone went into the back of the lab with one of those gongs and kind of gave it a whack. And the person in the altered state, because you can achieve altered states, um, there was zero recognition that anything had happened at all. But the person who was studying more something more akin to mindfulness meditation, there was immediate spike in all of their kind of data, but then it immediately dropped down and continued as though nothing had happened. And for me, that's a really interesting thing because we, we don't want to close ourselves off from life. We still want to experience life, the highs and lows of life. We just don't want to be kind of stuck at an elevated point of stress. And ordinarily, 
we might get that spike and then we'd stay up there for maybe a few hours, a few days, maybe a week or two if we're really stressed. But mindfulness allows us to experience it fully and then to let go of it and continue as though kind of, you know, nothing's happened. And I think that's a really important kind of distinction between the two. That's, I mean, that's like living life to its full. And Absolutely. Not, so that is where the benefit is. Exactly. Because I, I feel like we miss, we miss so much of life because we are caught up in our own thinking. You mentioned, I saw in your TED talk again, like, what is it, half the time we're lost in thought? Yeah. The, the study at Harvard um, that came out probably about mm, six, seven, eight years ago now. Yeah. They, they said 40, 47% of our time is lost in thought. And more than that, that when we allow mind wandering to take place, we are more likely to experience unhappiness. Yeah. A ruminating mind is, exactly. is, is generally an unhappy mind. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you meditate on the, on the commute, on the train? Absolutely. I, I do it. Absolutely. That's all right? Yeah, okay. 100%. I think where, wherever you find the time in your life, and we even have, um, you know, we even have kind of separate exercises on the app for commuting. And, okay. you know, I think it's... I love the idea that, that people are finding, they're making smart use of their time, you know, rather than thinking, okay, well, I've got my commute and then I've got to find more time in my day. Yeah. Well, actually, we already have that time in our day where we're sitting there not really doing anything. Yeah. So it's an opportunity. I, I stick earplugs in. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm completely People over. shouting at you. All these friends that think you're just not, not even <laughs> yeah, responding yeah. to them anymore. Uh, I'm over worrying what people on trains <laughs> think. Before we get onto the sport stuff, Quick question for you. Um, one mindful tip that I've learned that's that's quite good. So sometimes I will set a reminder on, say, my watch, and when mm. it goes off, I'll, I'll come into my senses. So I'll, you know, I'll, okay, shut my eyes or not. Okay, what can I hear? Yep. Three things. Then what can I feel? Bottom on the seat, feet on the floor. Yep. What can I taste? What yep. can I smell? And and if I do that, just for you know a minute, even yep. a few times a day, I notice that over the by the end of the day, I, I'm more level. Yes. Have you any other tips of that ilk that you can share? Yeah, I think any any opportunities kind of like that, and I, again, look for for natural breaks in the day. So. You know, I used to encourage people to put, you know, even if it's just a blank kind of post-it note on the back of the front door before they walk out in the morning and you just put in the intention, okay, between here and, you know, you choose the place, I'm just going to be present, aware of the sensation of my feet on the floor. When you get to work, when you're turning on the computer, waiting for it to warm up, use that as an opportunity just to, to pause, to check in with your physical senses. Maybe it's the sound of the computer kind of charging. Maybe it's the sensation of your body on the seat. I feel like, you know, it could be could be eating as well. Yeah. Most of us will take our lunch break, but we won't really take a lunch break. So we'll be eating a sandwich while scrolling through emails and social, whilst talking to somebody else, whilst listening to music. And there is no... There is no way we can do all of those things at once well. Yeah. So better to kind of, before you eat each time, even if it's for 30 seconds, pause, take a deep breath, feel that sensation of the feet on the floor. And it's something really grounding about doing that. And then just check, are you about to dive into this kind of, you know, this world of uh, distraction? Or are you going to take 10 minutes to eat your sandwich, enjoy your sandwich, actually taste the food that you're eating and then do the other things. And I feel simply by pausing, we start to notice our behavior and we give ourselves the opportunity to change it. Mindfulness and sport. Not yeah. immediately obvious, bedfellows. Really? Well, I, well no, I mean, you're right. You're right. 
actually, no, I hear so, you. But I let, hear let you. me let me let me explain why I said that. So when I mentioned that you were coming in, someone yeah. said to me, "Okay, ask him." how, for example, footballers can decompress after the match. And yeah. the suggestion to me there is, okay, it's something you do outside. Yeah, interesting. I, I was like, actually, it's more about dealing with those stressful moments during the match. That's that's kind of, I mean, it's probably both, but that's what yeah. I thought. So that's why I suggested perhaps it, the two aren't immediately obvious yeah. together. And I think it's because most people still think about meditation and mindfulness as... Okay, still relax, calm, and then they're looking at a frantic game of football and thinking, well, how do these two kind of fit together? Mm -hmm. So, look, we work with we've been working with elite athletes for about eight nine years now. Um, before we even kind of had had an app, and we now work with loads of sports teams, uh, more in the US, but here in the UK now as well. And we work in three main areas. Actually, four. So the first one is is preparation. So how do we help players to be focused? and to be motivated throughout their training and before a game. So um, there is really, really good science that meditation helps us to be more focused. Okay. Um, then during... Sorry, just quickly, how does yeah. it help the motivation? During mo motivation. So imagine like a way that we could, you know, you could think about it is, okay, so you wake up in the morning and you're going to go for a run. Okay. So the thought arises in the mind, eh, I don't know if I really want to go for a run. Okay, now we can buy into that thought and not go for the run, or we can realize, oh, it's just a thought, let it go, and then go for a run. So if you think about from a, a, an elite athlete point of view, someone who needs to kind of turn up and train with maximum intensity every time, it's really important they have the ability to see thoughts for what they are, to let them go, and actually continue with the plan that they kind of have in place. Makes sense. So that's the preparation. Then there's the performance bit. So I'm going to go back to, I'm um, sorry to go back to the rugby from last weekend. That's all right. But you saw it. We all saw it. And there's something really interesting there, isn't there? Within, within a game itself, how, you know, there is no way at that level that there was a change in skill. Like, mm. you know, there's really not that much kind of change in skill. Something happened mentally. The team kind of, there are always swings, of course, in games, swings of momentum. But that was a really considerable kind of lead, you know. So, it's, it's, yeah, so it's no, it's no coincidence that Eddie Jones came out afterwards and said, okay, we're going to bring in a kind of a team psychologist because this is clearly kind of mental. So how can we help build mental resilience? And at the same time, kind of recognizing that there's a... There's a, a quality of flow in sport. So it's where there's a relaxed focus. Now, if you think about the language of meditation and mindfulness, we are cultivating a relaxed focus. So there's actually, the similarities are, are kind of more apparent than they may first kind of seem. So we try to give players, athletes, the, the tools they need to spend more time in that state of flow during a game. And when they're in a state of flow, Rather than thinking about their performance, rather than thinking about something that just went wrong kind of in a previous play, they're actually present with what's going on right now. So resiliency and flow within performance. And then there is the recovery aspect. I think recovery has been very much neglected over the years. It's almost like, oh, right, job done, off to the pub. Um, not in every sport, but in a lot of sports. And... We know that as we meditate, we move from a sympathetic to parasympathetic kind of system uh, state. And our, again, our breathing starts to slow down. The, the harmful chemicals in our body, the production of those begin to slow down and we actually recover kind of faster. 
We're then more likely to sleep better. Again, we know kind of there's a lot of science around meditation and sleep. We know we're more likely to, to sleep and not just sleep for a, for a certain number of hours, but to get restful sleep, um, which a lot of athletes kind of really struggle with. And then finally, rehabilitation. So we know that meditation helps to reduce the perception of pain, um, which is a really important kind of part of, of recovery. So there's preparation, performance, recovery, and then there is a wrapper around all of that, which is how do we help these young players who are under enormous pressure simply live happy lives? Because most of them, and I can tell you, I've been in with countless teams, people who have paid tens and tens of millions of dollars to perform on a weekly basis, and they are really unhappy. So I think there's the performance layer, but there's also this wrapper around it, which is like, how do we help these athletes? It's really easy to look at them and kind of go, yeah, they pay so much money. How could they possibly be unhappy? Money doesn't buy us happiness. Never has done, never will do. And a lot of these players, are, especially within the, the sort of culture of social kind of now, like they're really struggling. Really? That's, yeah. that's really interesting. That, that wouldn't have occurred to me when you were coming in and I know the work you were doing with the sport to think of it in terms of, from a well-being point of view, actually, it's obvious though. Yeah. Cool, yeah. yeah. Uh, like you said, with the social media and the attention. And yeah, and just, I think, fans these days kind of feel, oh. I don't, so emboldened to abuse even their own teams, their own kind of players and heroes and idols and... You know, you hear some of these players talk about the things that are said about them and their families. Like For young kids, like that is a really big ask. It's a big ask even for kind of more mature players in, in the various leagues. But for young kids especially, I think that's it's tough. Yeah, it's a problem, I think, actually. Yeah. Um, you mentioned England rugby, right? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's, do a little, let's do a little thought experiment. Okay. 36-24, Scotland are charging back. Yeah. Finn Russell is bossing things. Freeze play. You're yeah. dropped into the middle. An England huddle. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what magic would you would you, would you work? Even I, how? I, I wish it was as simple as that. Um, I'd I'd probably um, be working a lot more in that environment if it was. I think. Look, it's how do you create? It's not what happens in in that moment actually, because at that moment it's probably almost too late i think it's how do you how do you create a culture of mindfulness within a team where you're able to let go and learn from losses in the past where you don't get carried away and you don't become overly kind of confident just because you won a few times and you're able to turn up and be present as a cohesive team as a cohesive unit in each and every game. And once you do that, that's what brings the changes. There isn't a magic bullet. I mean, look, you, I'd love to be able to kind of say to that entire team at the time, oh, okay, look, I know this has happened before, but don't worry, kind of, look, it's not going to happen again this time. Just let go of that thought and you'll regain your momentum again. Because by that stage, the momentum has already kind of swung. So I think, again, it's about mental resiliency. We build it up over time. We build up stamina of mental resiliency. And then in those moments when we are under pressure, we don't crack, we don't buckle, we're able to kind of finish the job off. I get it's easier, I suppose, I imagine in that situation, you know, to try and solve the problem by thinking. So thinking their way exactly. through the problem. But if they'd have, say, for example, learn over a period of time to 
uh, you know, in those tough moments to be in their feet yeah. or to be in their senses, yeah. that that would have helped? Yeah, absolutely. So we worked um, a, uh, a ton with, um, so um, I don't know if you follow Sevens Rugby no, at I all. I like Sevens. Okay. Yeah. So ben Ryan had him on. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we'll look, the, the Sevens team, obviously at the last Olympics, did an amazing yeah. job and, and kind of medaled. And um, so we worked a lot with um, um, the sports psychologist from, from the Sevens team. Um, and and the the captain flew out and we worked with him as well and, and it was interesting kind of just chatting through kind of in those moments of high intensity and high pressure how he was able to quite literally stand there on the pitch even with all those people a stadium full of people and actually get out of his mind get out of those doubts to step out of that thinking and to focus his attention on his feet on the pitch so that he could be present enough to actually execute on the kick. Mm. And it's, again, it's tempting to think kind of in that, like, where does mindfulness fit in? Well, it fits in right there. Mm. Even if you look back at the likes of Johnny Wilkinson, you know, I mean, there was a man with a ritual, with a routine and with an ability to step out of his mind, be in the body under high pressure situations and, and execute most most of the time. God bless Johnny. Good, God bless Johnny. <laughs> God bless Johnny. What a moment that was. Okay, I'm going to throw a couple of scenarios at you. Okay. Because a couple of recent ones. So, for example, let's think Eric Dyer walking up for that penalty shootout in the World Cup, okay? Or a player losing their rag, like when Patrice Evra attacked a fan recently, or, yeah. or Kepa refusing to be substituted. So, in each of these moments, either an opportunity for the mind to go wild, or the yeah. mind is going wild. Yeah. So, if you had, you know, a chance to work with those guys, yeah. you know, beforehand or during, or probably more before, because you talk about building the culture, Ideally, you know. Yeah. So, so what what would what would it look like in the build up to to those things? Yeah. So. I think if you look at the the qualities of mindfulness sort of more more broadly, um, we start to see a greater sense of calm, a greater sense of clarity, so insight into what the mind is doing, and a greater sense of contentment, so a sense of kind of ease with the mind as it is. So ordinarily in life, something happens, and again, it's just amplified on a sports field. It's not like it's any different from the rest of our, our lives. Um, something happens, and we tend to react very strongly. It's almost as though it's so habitual we kind of don't even know what's happened until after it's happened and then we feel bad about it. So if you think about the idea of stepping back from thoughts and creating space in the mind, in those moments that it happens, there is a tiny bit of space. And in that space, before that thing happens, we have an opportunity. We can choose to engage with it or we can choose to disengage with it. And so having the ability to, let's say, stepping up to take a penalty kick, a doubt arises. We can engage with it or we can disengage with it. We can drop it and take the penalty kick. If we're about to attack a fan, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen too often, to be honest. But there again, there is, it sounds, when we're not used to that feeling, it sounds almost impossible. Like how how could that even happen? But with consistent training, we can start to create that space and that space gets bigger and bigger. It feels as though we have more time. So rather than reacting from a sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction point of view, instead we respond from a, a place of, of calm and clarity. You talk about disengaging. Now that's not suppressing, is it's it? It's definitely not suppressing. Two very different By things. disengaging, I simply mean letting go of. Yeah, so sort yeah. of observing, recognise, yeah, ra- Rather than buying into and, and spending a lot of time and effort on it. And something that strikes me about mindfulness and meditation is is you become aware of having the that power of choice. Exactly. So, so when those, let's talk about the fan. You yeah, know, yeah, attack, yeah, yeah. Attack scenario. <laughs> yeah. Those, 
flare up, that heat of anger comes up, yeah. you, you, you can witness it and therefore you're obliged almost to have a choice not to go along with it. Yeah, it's almost like instead of, instead of it being, I'm really angry, it's like, oh, look, anger. That's a, such a different experience. It's a difference between kind of maybe, I don't know, being caught out in a storm and maybe sitting inside a house looking out at the storm through the window. That's a nice analogy there. You know, that's, and it really, it feels that different. Yeah, yeah. That's, I really like that analogy. And, and I think this is a nice time to go yeah. a bit deeper. Right, okay. Here we go. People in the West think of meditation as like a therapeutic Very often. tool. Right? Yeah. But actually, at its heart, yeah. it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it's a, isn't yeah. it? It's about, I mean, people talk about enlightenment, right? And, and, and I've heard people talk about enlightenment. <laughs> I bet you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very sure you have. And it's about sort of understanding reality, essentially. Now, yeah. I'm a fan of non-duality. Okay. Now, a lot of people won't even, I think, be aware of what that is. And yeah. it will sound absolutely bonkers, right? But yeah. I, I like people. There are a couple of people. I like Eckhart Tolle, Rupert Spira, these sort of guys. And and also, like the tradition you come in, I sort of had a little dig around there as well. And it, it's um, understanding the illusion... Yeah. of a subject-object split. So I, I'm in here, in my head, yeah. and the world is out there. Whereas the reality, a lot of people would argue, is the personal self we imagine ourselves to be is actually a mirage. What have you got to say about that? I mean, well, first of all, this is one of the most interesting questions and definitely not something I was necessarily expecting on a sports kind <laughs> of well. orientated podcast. Yeah. I love it. It's yeah. great. Look, I think duality actually isn't such a, a radical idea. Um, yes, I, I do sort of my experience has 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 been that that, that is kind of case the, the case. We tend to live within a dualistic world. So by that, within our mind, there's a start and a finish of this and of that. And we kind of always kind of have these polar opposites. So there's always a sort of a certain amount of tension kind of in that thinking. And in order to experience the mind in its kind of true essence, we need to transcend that thinking. We need to go beyond intellectual thought to a place of non-duality. And so I think most of, for me, that is awareness, actually. Mm. So it sounds, non-dual non could sound kind of very mystical. Actually, it's just being aware. And normally we're caught up in our dualistic mind, our thinking mind of this and that. Mm. Once we learn to let go of that and we learn to let go of that by resting in awareness, then we experience non-duality. Mm. And I think it's stability of it. You know, so when you do hear people talking about enlightenment and those kind of things, it's not that we're here and enlightenment's kind of over there. It's more about finding stability of awareness or stability of non-duality where we're no longer caught up in that thinking of, of this and that. And yes, ultimately, we're looking to come to a point where there is no separation between the observer, the observed, and the process of observing. When those three things become one, then, um, I mean, we're probably getting into no, kind like of diva territory. Yeah, if anyone's uh, stuck with this, this podcast this long, they deserve it. You know. It's because you mentioned there, you know, there's, there's people think I'm angry. And it's just like, oh, no, there's anger. Yeah. So that that kind of the I that we believe ourselves to be. Yeah. Do you go along with the idea that actually it's 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 a it's a mirage that it's a false sense of self? It's an illusion. I think there is. Um, look, there is a there is a necessary. The ego is is entirely necessary. It's quite interesting. You sometimes hear kind of people talking about, right, I'm going to I'm going to destroy the ego. Well, who's thinking that other than the ego? Mm. So I think those kind of thoughts are, you know, they're, they're interesting to, to explore. 
Um, but yeah, ultimately, we, we have a, an ego which is necessary for everyday life. You know, there has to be something that says, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to have something to eat. I'm going to go to work. That's really important that we kind of have that function. The important thing is that we don't kind of believe that every thought that we experience is our own, that that makes us who we are. If we're able to kind of create that space, then, yeah, ultimately we see that there is no fixed permanent I. There is just an ever-changing moment-to-moment experience of thought, of feeling, internal, external. There is nothing fixed to be found. And I think that does require a a little bit of practice to kind of really experience a way I like to think about it. So there's the small I, which is the ego, yeah. which is the I, the me, the me, yeah. the my, all that stuff. Yeah. And then there's that deeper I, which is the awareness that you that you talk about, that yeah. you rest in. Yeah. And is it, do you go along with that that deeper I is the same in me as it is in you? The, ultimately, we're all connected. Yeah, I do. Um, it's interesting. We could do a really like simple exercise right now. Let's do it. Okay. I'm well key. Okay. So look, you can I, um, what was the last holiday you went on? Oh, crikey. That's a good question. My missus will kill me. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went abroad. Um, okay. I, uh, where did we go? We went, you know, it was, we had a vi- little villa last okay. summer. I can't Can, remember pi- Okay. Picture the villa. Let's call it Menorca. Okay. Pi- picture the, yeah, the can, villa in yeah, Menorca. Picture the villa, yeah. Okay. So right now, mm-hmm. where are you visualizing that? Are you visualizing it in the middle of your head or are you visualizing it out in front of you somewhere? Are you projecting it kind of out into the space in front of you, to the side of you? I would say it's sort of around around my eyes. Okay. I've got my eyes shut, by the way. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. You can open your eyes again. So it's interesting, right? So even on a, a very kind of basic kind of level, right, we tend to think that our mind is inside of our head. But actually, when we look at kind of how we imagine things, we don't imagine them in our brain. We actually kind of imagine them outside of ourselves. So already, even just at a very kind of early state we start to see that the mind exists sort of beyond our body and in fact even if you get someone to to kind of sort of move towards you we can often feel the person before they've kind of even reached us so there's clearly kind of the mind clearly operates outside the boundaries of our body where it kind of starts and where it stops i think is a really interesting thing to explore but ultimately yes my experience has been in meditation when we let go of that identity completely and wholly then we find and discover that we are connected with everything and everyone love that right i, I know this is deep so that we, i will drink <laughs> this. this is purely i can't resist so the, the the modern the current sort of um world view of say consciousness yeah say, is the brain creates it Okay, the brain the brain creates consciousness. Now the non-dual view of it is yeah. consciousness is primary. So consciousness has objects, objects don't have consciousness. Yeah. A- agree or what? So I think actually I mean I, I don't know where that comes from. Most neuroscientists that, that I've spoken to are of the opinion that they don't know yet. Yeah. They don't know yet mm. what is the origin of consciousness. They understand how the brain processes thought and they understand how thoughts begin their journey in the brain, but they don't understand the origin of, of consciousness itself. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I do think it's important to, to separate brain and mind. I think it's fascinating to look at how the brain processes mm. things. And I think we're learning amazing things. 
about how the mind kind of works. Um, but they are fundamentally mind and consciousness and the physical brain are two very different things. Okay, right. Enough of the really deep stuff. Okay. Um, let, let, I know you were at Arsenal this week. I uh, was at you Arsenal. You were at Arsenal. And the director of high performance yeah. tweeted, uh, he obviously thoroughly enjoyed having you there, so he tweeted, <laughs> he loved your engaging talk and in particular the practical demo. Well, there you go. So what was the practical demo? There you go. We were just doing a little exercise. Oh, you're you know? not allowed to share. We are doing a little exercise. I, do you know, I, I mean, I'm delighted he did tweet it. Um, I thought it was all confidential. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, look, I, we, we've just come to the end of a 10-week um, a feasibility study um, with Arsenal. So Arsenal, like us, were of the belief that, that meditation and mindfulness are at the, the frontier, the next frontier for sports performance. Uh, they reached out and asked if, if we wanted to be part of this, this study. Um, I was delighted to be involved. Uh, Rich, who's my, he's a very good friend, but he's also co-founder of, of Headspace. He's a, a massive Arsenal, Arsenal fan. So he said yes. Um, and, and it's been fascinating. We'll, we'll release the results in uh, probably next month sometime. And um, and then look to see kind of where where that goes, where we've found that in you know if we look on the other side of the pond in the US, where we've started working with a few teams in the league. So NBA, for example, we started working with Lakers, Knicks, Bulls, yeah. and then that eventually led to kind of uh, a collaboration with the a partnership with the NBA as a whole and and with all of the teams. And, and my hope is that over time we'll see the same thing here, kind of where, where players in the premiership kind of have access to tools that not only kind of help improve their performance, but also help them to live a, a healthier and happier life. This podcast always looks at things in sport and, and say, for example, take subjects like nutrition or getting more energy and they, they really use well in sport and then hang on a sec we're missing a trick because yeah. let, let's use them with you know, everyday life yeah. so the fact that Arsenal are doing this that, that yeah. sort of comes back to what we are saying earlier about you know in 10, 15, 20 years yeah. it's get, like companies will you'll be everywhere basically yeah I mean it's it's already kind of happening in, in companies and um, look what I my favourite thing although I, I love that it helps teams and I love that it helps the athletes but more than that I love what that does to our sort of society because so many young kids look up to these players, to these athletes as their idols, as their heroes. They want to live like they're living. They want to do what they're doing. And if they're doing it, then that gives permission for an entire generation to come through and make it part of their everyday life. And hopefully young kids, the next generation, will grow up with this being a normal everyday thing that they do. Right, Andy, it's been an absolute blooming treat for me. I love it. I'll pick your brains. <laughs> it's such a excellent. I love. Um, last two yeah. questions. Right. So, penultimate yeah. one. First of all, someone listening. Yeah. Perhaps not a regular meditator, not particularly familiar with mindfulness. Are there any sort of words or wisdom or tips or anything like that you you can share with them to perhaps allow them or encourage them to be more mindful and all that kind of jazz? Yeah. So. Look, the heart of my mindfulness is not easy to learn at first. So get yourself a meditation practice. It doesn't matter whether it's headspace or, or something else. Like find find a time in your day, whether it's three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, where you actually pause for long enough to become familiar with the quality of mindfulness. Because until you do that, it's really difficult to then implement it into the rest of the day. And then my advice always, alongside a new meditation practice, choose one thing that you're going to be mindful for the week. So it might be brushing your teeth. So when you're brushing your teeth, be aware of the sound, the smell, 
the taste, the physical movement as you move the brush. And you're just just focusing on that. If you can do that for a week and then the following week, you carry on with brushing your teeth, but you add one more thing. So maybe it's the walk to work. And then the week after you add one more thing rather than thinking, right, I'm suddenly going to go from zero to 100 and walking around with a, an M cape. Like instead kind of think, how can, how can I slowly build up a really stable practice? And that's what I've seen has kind of worked best. And also that idea of Rather than thinking of this as one more thing to do in the day, this is the one thing in the day when there is nothing to do. View it as a treat, not as a chore. This is the only time in our day when we can really sort of rest, relax and let go without any responsibility. So as much just reframing it like that, I think can really can really help. Chance to just step off the treadmill, basically. Exactly. V- very last question. Yeah. <laughs> so what is, what is the, the great seal? So I mentioned to you earlier, in your tradition that you, where you were a monk, yeah. you talked about the Great Seal. What is that? So, look, the way um, the way it was always taught to me was actually it was more about kind of being... the. So the tradition is the Kaju tradition. And um, it's often talked about as the, the oral tradition as well as the Great Seal. And I, I think the oral tradition is perhaps the most important thing. It's about kind of this lineage of authenticity, of essence being passed down from teacher to student over many hundreds, if not, you know, many hundreds of years, if not millennia. And and for me, I feel like what I'm doing in the world, I'm simply sharing what has been shared for hundreds and hundreds of years. This isn't something I've come up with. This isn't kind of my, my own design. I feel like how the most important thing is how do we maintain that authenticity and share it in, a, in, a, in an accessible and secular way. And just to send you on your way, Andy, yeah. I loved it. Your pin tweet, I'll just read it out. Be present, be patient, be gentle, be kind. Everything else takes care of itself. That was the advice I got from my teacher when I left the monastery. And yeah, it's been incredibly valuable advice. Andy Puddicombe, it's been a blooming pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. And thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Turn With The Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.